Hello and welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. I'm excited to bring you this interview and I'll get to details about some of the podcast information soon, but let me introduce him first and then we'll get started. Uh, Mark Ryan is an historian of American thought and culture. Uh, Dr. Ryan was a dean of Jonathan Edwards College and teacher of American studies and history at Yale University for more than 20 years. Subsequently, he was titular for professor at the Universidad de las Americas in Puebla, Mexico, where he also served as dean of the college's regent and Jose Gallos College and coordinator of the master's degree program in United States studies. He holds a PhD and master's degree from Yale University, a master's from the University of Texas at Austin, and a bachelor's from the University of St. Thomas. Mark is the author of A Different Dimension, Reflections on the History of Transpersonal Thought, A Collegiate Way of Living, out of Yale University 2001, and articles on various journals on higher education, and articles in the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology and related publications on the history of psychology. He is certified by Groff Transpersonal Training as a practitioner of holotropic breathwork, served for 14 years on the Board of Trustees at Nairobi University, is past chair of the Board of Directors of Wisdom University, and past chair and current trustee of the Jonathan Edwards Trust at Yale. Living now in his native city of Houston, Mark teaches and lectures at the C.G. Young Educational Center and other venues and is a principal facilitator of Holotropic Breathwork Houston. Check that out at holotropicbreathworkhouston.com. And I serve on uh, the Young Center's Curriculum Committee with Mark, and as I say in the interview, it's really nice to get to know him in a new way. And the book certainly blew my mind. This transpersonal thing is really, really important to dig into. So thanks, Mark. Really, thank you for your time, and thank you for your wisdom, and thanks for writing this book and presenting it to us. Uh, and I'll get to the interview in a couple of minutes. I just want to get to a couple of details about the podcast. If you're new, welcome. I mean, or if you've been around for a while, welcome. Welcome. <laughs> um, uh, the podcast has an audio and a video component, so it's available on all the podcast affiliates. You can check it out at SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, all those all those places. Uh, and also, it is available on YouTube. So if you're listening to this, uh, check out check it out on YouTube and like and subscribe to the page. And if you're same thing, watching it on YouTube, thank you and check it out on all these affiliates and like and share and subscribe to those. It helps as the uh, as the project and the podcast grows and expands itself. Uh, so The Sacred Speaks, you can get tons of information on the website at thesacredspeaks.com. And there's a new website that uh, is coming out for The Sacred Speaks, and, and be looking for that in the next, I don't know, three weeks probably. Also, uh, The Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative wellness clinic that my wife and I started and uh, we've got tons of information about how we serve folks in, the, in Houston and Texas and beyond. Check that out at thecenterforhas.com. And also, uh, I guess the last thing I need to talk about music. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know I'm obsessed with music. And, uh, and music has been a really big part of this podcast. But in particular, there's a group called Modern Nations. And that's the theme song that I use for each episode. And if you hang out to the end of the episode, you'll hear the full song. Certainly click below, and you can go to their website and check out all the cool music that they're putting out into the world. Uh, thanks, Nolan, and thanks, Toby. Uh, as far as today's concerned, I think that'll do it. And, oh yeah, the, the other thing that's happening I've been talking about is uh, uh, the Sacred Series. It's a YouTube channel that uh, is coming out in, hopefully, uh, within the next month. And I'm going to be reviewing a lot of these podcast episodes, if 
actually all the podcast episodes, starting with episode one, and amplifying and synthesizing some of the information that's presented within. Um, this information is just too good. These these folks I've been interviewing for four years now are just uh, um, uh, important in, in, of course, my own development, but important in the context of um, depth thinking and feeling and mysticism and religion and psychology and anthropology and on and on and on. And I'm uh, constantly and consistently grateful. By the way, those of you who are commenting on YouTube, thank you. Um, I, I, I enjoy the, the back and forth, and I've actually ordered a number of the books that have been recommended. So um, there's a cool community out there, and uh, you guys are, uh, are, are wise uh, and a lot of insight. So uh, thank you. Thanks for your comments. Thanks for your engagement. And thanks for participating. So uh, I'll, I'll, for now, I'll leave it there. And thank you, Mark Ryan. For, um, for participating. Mark, it's, uh, it's a joy, actually, to sit with you. And as we were laughing a second ago, we were at risk of starting the interview before we started the interview. I- I'm, I'm, glad, <laughs> I'm glad I had the wisdom to, to shut up and... Uh, and, and get eager to, to chat with you and hit record. So it's wonderful to have you here, and uh, thank you for making the time. Well, John, I'm delighted to be here. This is such a wonderful project you're involved in, and I'm, I'm honored to be part of it. You know, just before uh, tuning in here, I had I was trying to tune in myself, and I usually get a, a hit before, say, teaching a class of what's needed and what mm. I what I what immediately came to me was I just just connect with John. It's it's John and his his depth and his personality that, that I want to just bathe in, and out of that I think can come whatever needs to come out about about this book and whatever I have to say. So I'll take a hit of that, man. I'm 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 down with that. <laughs> well, thanks, really, because you you and I. Um, a dear, a dear colleague and friend of mine, Nanine Ewing, is has has been a friend for years, and she's she's died recently. And um, what was so radical about be, knowing her and then interviewing her, and and I remember what I said to her was, "It's really wonderful to get to know you in a new way." And you and I, our lives intersect in all kinds of interesting ways. And now I've read your book, and we're going to get to talk about. Your, your development, your intellectual history, your spiritual history, and kind of how you got to some of these thoughts, and certainly the lineages that you're in. And I'm, I'm just eager to get to know you in that way, Mark. It, it's a fruitful experience. Well, I could, I could feel that, and uh, the same goes right back to you. Amen, man. Well, let's, so I, um, I, what I will have done is, is provide your bio in the intro piece, and so people will be a bit oriented to you. And rather than starting with the bio, um, which we'll certainly get to, because I think that's important for all of us to, to know and be able to contextualize somebody's experience within that kind of narrative, I, I also um, want to begin with a quote here. Because one thing I was going to tell you earlier, hang on, I'm looking for my glasses. One thing I was going to tell you earlier is that um, your book really sit, is, huh, look at that, I got like 14. Um, yeah. I've done I can't tell you how many times I've done that. I get to watch this stuff back and I'm like, all right, man, you're wearing two sets of glasses on your head. Um, whether that stays in the edits or not. Uh, no, that's definitely going in. Uh, yeah, th- th- that will be in there. 
Um, only because I'm kind of a... I mean, sometimes I edit stuff out when it needs to be edited out, but for the most part, I have this, like, I want a genuine conversation. So I'm sure I need to deal with that because from the observer's perspective, they're like, we don't need to see that shit. But I, I think to your point, you know, when you bathe in real conversation, um, I, I think we're thirsty for that. And as a psychotherapist, it's kind of my, my, my weekly process is I'm consistently bathing in conversation with people in really intimate ways. And, um, and I, I, I want that to be a part of what this is. So I appreciate your word there. I got it. I feel the same thing in the class. <laughs> when, they, when we have a, a small, really engaged group, things come out of me, <laughs> surprise me. Oh man, it, it does. And I, 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 as you teach, and we'll certainly talk about your experience in academia, but as, as you teach, I, I do think there's a, there's a moment where um, we realize like the larger the class gets, um, the less intimate it can become. So I do like those small groups. Uh, so here I had uh, teed up, uh, this I may add it out because I'm trying to find this quote. Yeah, good, I found it fast. Um, so I want to begin with this because, uh, and, and see, uh, and believe me, you, you go wherever you like to go. I just offer this up for our container here. Uh, I starred this. I put a line next to it. I said, quote this in the margin. I, so <laughs> obviously, I want to begin. This is the way you start chapter seven in your book. And by the way, folks, you'll see plenty of stuff here. This is, this is the book, uh, A Different Dimension, Reflections on the History of Transpersonal Thought by Mark B. Ryan. And, uh, and I've, I've been reading your, your work now, of course, for a couple of weeks in and out, and it's a, it's a meaningful narrative that I need to hear. And so, again, I'm, it's kind of meeting me exactly where I needed to be met as far as my own kind of psychological and spiritual development is concerned. So I'll start with this, and then we'll just uh, jump in and I'll shut up. Uh, the basic idea of transpersonal psychology may be infinitely profound, but it can be stated simply. Our individual ego, our sense of personal self, and the psyche that sustains it is embedded in an interconnected cosmos. Our personal psyche reaches into and is penetrated by a collective consciousness, a natural ambience, a spiritual foundation and context. Our individual consciousness stretches, then, beyond the personal. It has dimensions that are transpersonal. A fuller understanding of the human psyche must take account of those connections of the psyche's reach into the wider realms of consciousness, as exemplified in extraordinary human experiences that stretch the bounds of our awareness. We are dealing here, then, with a scientific and empirical study of mind-oriented towards spirit, a spiritual psychology. Thank you for that. Uh, anybody got uh, Mark's book? It's on page 127, beginning of chapter 7. I figured we'd start there because that I thought was a was a wonderfully concise, beautiful uh, definition of of transpersonal psychology. Thank you, John. Thank you for for pointing out some of my better prose there. <laughs> the, um, that's that's not only what I think transpersonal psychology is about, but it's it's um, it's a statement of the broader thesis of the book. It, you'll. You may notice that the frontispiece, as we call it, the little blurb at the very front of the book, mm -hmm. is from William James, and it's saying the same thing. Let me let me begin with that. 
The further limits of our being plunge, it seems to me, into an altogether other dimension of existence from the sensible and merely understandable world. Name it the mystical region or the supernatural reason, whichever you choose, we belong to it in a more intimate sense than that in which we belong to the visible world. Now the, the um, passage you read starts part two of the book, I believe, which is uh, specifically about the field of transpersonal psychology, so-called, right? And I think in, in general, what I was trying to do with this book is really twofold. One is a somewhat addressed to people who might have a, a kind of orientation that you and I have that are just tending towards that, that view of the world that you just stated. <laughs> they, uh, and some of them are in transpersonal psychology as a field and know the term, know the name, and know something about it. That field has been self-defined as more or less beginning in the late 1960s with uh, the work of Abraham Maslow, Stanislav Grof, the influx of Asian thought into, um, into Western psychology, really incorporating it, figure like Ken Wilber. Mm -hmm. so these, these are people who um, really saw themselves as starting a revolution within the field of psychology. Uh, Maslow called it the fourth force, right? And they saw what they were doing in the late 1960s as a revolution, brand new, something that was really uh, un almost unprecedented. And my, my field is the history of ideas. So I, as I got involved with that through the marvelous intervention of Stanislav Grof, uh, partly, primarily, I, um, I felt that uh, this resonated with a lot of things I had, I had read before and that the field itself wasn't quite um, cognizant, fully cognizant of its predecessors. Mm -hmm. So. Part of what I was trying to do was to show the audience for transpersonal psychology that the foundation here, these basic ideas, really stretch back to the beginning of the field of psychology as a formal, uh, as, as a formal academic field in the late 19th century. So that was one thing, and that's a little bit academic, right? That's, that's kind of addressed towards a, a, a more specific audience that's, um, knows the term transpersonal psychology. But the other effort of the book was to present the foundational ideas in a way that would be accessible for a general public. Mm -hmm. So to really to talk about the origins of some of these ideas within the field of modern psychology, we may trace the ideas back to the practically the beginning of time, uh, but certainly to the Gnostics say, but the, um, what I was looking at was how these ideas really affected this, the field of psychology as it, as it um, 
defined itself as a science. And to note that these ideas are being drawn on as a way of explaining empirical data rather than out of a spiritual conviction of some sort. So, well, that, that gets into the, <laughs> the, neg the, the nut, right? That's like the, the central issue, you know, that like, uh, you know, even to, to borrow from Jung for a second, this, 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 anybody who's read any of Jung knows about the personality one and two of this kind of bouncing back and forth between a more reductive scientific materialist worldview versus a kind of more uh, unbounded, uh, we would say kind of mystical space. And, in, and essentially what you're doing is you're giving credence to the limitations of the larger con conversation happening in academic psychology, certainly, and in sciences. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think, and, and Jung is a, a key figure here. He's not a figure I explore fully in the book because he's, um, he's written about so much. Right. Uh, he's he's recognized. He was recognized by founders of trans transpersonal psychology, so-called, when they started using the name, as um, as a predecessor. Mm -hmm. And people like Stan Groff and others uh, often refer to him as Groff uses the term the first transpersonal psychologist, even though he didn't call himself that. But Jung has been so fully explored and recognized in that way. What I wanted to call to, to do was to call attention to some figures who were not so recognized as tied to this emerging field and, uh, and see how their, their world of ideas really were coming to play here, just as they came to play in the thought of Carl Jung. Well, it may be here I mean, to, to kind of put a little pin here because I find my, I, I know you and I also don't know your background as well as I want to. And so can can we do a little personal narrative here, uh, your own experience to kind of end uh, or bring us to this point where we're talking about your desire and interest in exploring this kind of lineage of, of transpersonal psychology? Well, sure. I um, I came through a uh, very dogmatic Catholic education in uh, more pre-Vatican II world, right? Where so this is the late 1950s, and there was something in me that was always was both trapped by and rebelling against the dogmatism. Mm -hmm. And as I, as I grew in my thought, I, I tried to release myself from the trap and, um, and reach out into different ways of, of seeing the world. And that I, I went to a Catholic university here in Houston, uh, University of St. Thomas. And that actually was the beginning of a kind of liberation because it was the, the thinking at the time was not, well, it, it ran the gamut, I suppose, but it was not presented predominantly in, as a kind of dogmatism, but as, uh, as a field for, for thought and discussion. 
and and I I responded to that, and uh, but eventually, it it took me out of the Catholicism, and I but I did I believed very strongly in liberal education. That's, mm -hmm. Was an ideology at, at St. Thomas, and it was it was a beautiful world in that time. There were 600 students in this little school, but that was at the time when the the Manil family was heavily involved, and Dominique de Manil was establishing the art department, and uh, the the thought of Vatican II was enlivening things in the church, and there was a very vibrant movement in literary criticism. My major was in English literature. And that uh, it was very, felt very vibrant at the time of um, what was called form criticism or new criticism. And uh, so I felt, uh, I got away from those Catholic ideas and that conception of, that I had grown up with, a very simplistic puerile conception, I would think of, of how reality was constituted. And, uh, and I felt that I, um, as I, I went through a pretty secular phase of uh, my, my PhD dissertation. I then went on to Yale Uni University of Texas where I picked up a master's degree and then my doctorate was at the university, of, uh, it was at Yale University in American studies, which was mostly on the, in the field of American thought. Was your and, master's in uh, literature? Um, no, my master's was in um, American civilization, the field was called. I actually wrote a master's thesis on William James, who permeates this book. Yes, thank and, you. And the, um, but I, I, even though I was, I had my PhD dissertation was a very secular character called H.L. Mencken, who uh, really saw himself as an iconoclast tearing down ideas. And um, he, uh, but he was a fabulous writer, which was what most drew me to him. Cultural critic and, and um, a social critic. But he, uh, it, I, there was always a part of me that was a seeker. And I got away from all organized religious life for quite a while. But there was something in me that was looking for that broader context. And I do credit the Catholic education as a big part of that, of, of just showing me the world's bigger than the kind of, kind of goals we tend to set for ourselves in modern life. And I, I moved. Um, well, I, I began searching in various ways. I went through, some of us are old enough to remember the first enthusiasm for transcendental med, med, meditation in the 1970s, perhaps. And uh, I got into meditation and yoga and um, some, uh, and I was drawn in my own field to transcendentalist thinking of figures like Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, particularly Thoreau, the, the notion of the notions coming out of the early 19th century that are pretty close to, to the basic frame of thought of modern transpersonal psychology, I'd say. And, uh, but then I, um, 
I, I did a lot of psychotherapy too, psychotherapy of different kinds, um, bioenergetics. I saw a bioenergetic therapist for many years, and that revealed a lot to me about mind-body connections that uh, weren't part of my dualistic upbringing. And I, um, and that I got in uh, somewhere around the late uh, 80s, a friend of mine who was very early trained by Stan Groff, Stan and Christina Groff in the uh, mid 70s, I suppose, well, later 70s, probably. Anyway, he, he was got a training in holotropic breathwork and uh, introduced me to that field. And I, I did some of it, uh, some of it drew me, some of it struck me as the ideas of people that I ran into struck me as um, um, further out than I could go at the time. I was, I was, really, I was really careful. <laughs> it's well I was, said. <laughs> I wasn't ready for, for reincarnation, for example. Yeah. yeah. And the, but I went to uh, my first workshop with Stan Groff in uh, the um, early 90s, I guess. And it, um, I got really intrigued in that direct experience that could seem to come. that mm -hmm. really drove one in deeper into the subconscious mind than... Um, certainly is our custom. And I realized that that, that worked. And uh, I, I kind of went along with that in a fairly light way until I, um, there was a point when I was on leave in um, uh, teaching at a university in Mexico on leave from Yale. And I uh, decided it might be time to look further into the work of Groff, his writings, he's a alumni, the alumnus writer, as well as the creator of this technique. And I had this, I had this uh, St. Augustine-like experience. I had, uh, I was in the rummaging in the library at the University in Mexico, which had some of Stan's books. But I was just vaguely going up to that section of the shelf. And I did, I acknowledge I disturbed the shelf in some way, just perhaps thumbing through it. And literally, this book fell on the floor in front of me. And it was Stan Groff's, what I would, what I think of as his magnum opus called Beyond the Brain. And Stan is a marvelous intellectual historian himself. So he, you know, always primarily a medical man and a psychiatrist. Uh, he a psychologist. He um, he was really in that book trying to tie the direct experiences that he had written about and investigated through psychedelic drugs, uh, the clinical use of psychedelic drugs, and the holotropic breath work with um, with broader concepts that were changing in the culture at the time and with the new physics, for example. And so I got really intrigued by that and that kind of set me on a path of, of putting together, it helped pull together my 
experiential spiritual searches with my um, uh, intellectual training in the history of ideas and really led me, I'd say, to a, a, a current stance which could always change. Uh, I, get a, I get a little frightened by people who say they return to their religious roots. <laughs> I don't want to go back there, man. <laughs> but uh, to a, a stance which uh, that I it's sympathetic to the movement we call spiritual, but not, not mm -hmm. religious. Mm -hmm. Another thing I, I see this book is doing is um, attempting, along with many others, to um, show a lineage, to display a lineage of rich thought that can, that can stand under this movement of spiritual but not religious that is often characterized as quite shallow. Uh, and it uh, and and I guess my argument here is that there's there's a rich lineage of thought that really focuses on the sense that the religious search is primarily in the personal depths, as uh, we spoke of in that as you spoke of in that opening quotation you read, and that I did with that frontispiece from William James. You go. Um, you have to go deep within and find ways of penetrating your subconscious mind in, um, to reach um, the, spirit, the level of spirituality that you're capable of. Well, let, and let's contain that for a moment because the, it seems to me that the reason why there's a certain um, association with a shallowness of spiritual but not religious, uh, critics would say something like, yeah, but you can kind of just go wherever your feelings take you. You know, if something's uncomfortable, you go over there and find something new. And so you're not held accountable to the kind of depths of that particular tradition. You referenced this in in your book when you were talking about how a lot of the kind of uh, broader religious traditions that we have have been cultivated, created, adapted, moved through centuries and centuries of transformation. So ostensibly, they've kind of burned off any of the um, unnecessary uh, par parts of the, the tradition or the structure that have been deemed to be unnecessary. Mm -hmm. and, and so th there is something of a, of a like, yeah, you can't be held accountable. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I understand that. And yet also, I bet somebody who is part of the spiritual but not religious community would say, yes, but it's almost totally about subjectivity. Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost entirely based upon your feelings and you know, where, where your images and your dreams and kind of that more personal orientation. Um, what, what's, I, I see the critique in that, and of course, I'm sure the answer is some kind of a both and. Um, but I, 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 we tend to forget that the spiritual but not religious community is interrelated in really important ways with the extremely religious community. Is that fair to say? Secular, sacred kind of dynamics? Does that make sense even? Well, I, I think so. The, the, you know, it's, it's all part of a spiritual search, right? And many people live their lives without the need for that. And that, that, that's fine. That may be fine. But, but the... Um, for those of us who feel like you want to have some sense of that wider context of, of, of 
reality. Yeah. Um, we're kind of driven towards some kind of a search. And I certainly respect the people who do that through, through very orthodox paths because those paths have been worked out for um, millennia. And uh, they, uh, two of my closest friends, I would immediately think of, one's a, a rabbi <laughs> and the other one's a, an Episcopal bishop. <laughs> and we get together, the three of us, and, and trade our um, points of view around on a month, monthly basis at least. And the, so um, I have a, a great respect for that because I, really, I feel like ultimately we're all involved in the same endeavor. Mm -hmm. But for me, with my wounding uh, from the terrors with which I was raised, that uh, orthodox path has not seemed like a way to go, at least not in the way I've known of it. So, um, and what, what I feel like has come out of the kinds of experiences I have had depth experiences that I have had, they, what, as you get into those deeper reaches within, you're reaching beyond your own personality. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a solipsistic. Uh, God, that term, man, that, that, that idea of solipsism haunts me. Yes, yeah. absolutely. If you get, if you get into that deeply enough, you find yourself in connection with so much else. You yes. find, uh, I, I believe, I have a running argument with Jeff Kripal about this, but I believe that you get, you hit a point of love. Uh -huh. And that, that connects you with others. And you hit, you hit a point of a sense of social responsibility. And uh, you may, you may in, uh, get into a, um, an experience where you're viewing the world through some other eyes. You know, the, the, the notion of, one notion of transpersonal psychology is that you, your own self can identify so that you feel it subjectively. Mm -hmm. The experience of other, not only other people, but collective experiences, animal experiences, uh, maybe even inanimate world that that gets further out than many people. Could, well, and, and uh, to to define this really, uh, there's something fascinating about if it were entirely subjective, there wouldn't really be any patterning that we could speak of or share. Like you know, there are certain patterns that I'm assuming manifest spontaneously in your mystical experience. And if I compared that to my mystical experience, we would have a, an ability to share. Oh, that happened to you? My version of that was this. Or the, you know, the, the disembodied entity you know, was a feminine voice for me, and it was a, 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 you know, a marsupial for you. <laughs> you know, that, that, but there's some kind of other. And so what, what, what is fascinating about the, you bringing solipsism into this, and I, I want to define that for folks, because th there are... Um, my, my understanding, right, is this is a, a kind of a narcissistic, egocentric, philosophical worldview that is essentially, you know, you are the center point and totality of reality, and that's it. Like, this is your, 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 you're the, you know, the writer, the director, the, uh, the protagonist, the antagonist, 
and, and the tables and chairs. Uh, would you add anything to that? Or uh, Well, what immediately comes to my mind is, is uh, your friend Carl Jung. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, you know, there are two cells, right? <laughs> and yes. Smaller yes. self, which is the personal ego, which is what we're talking about with that solid self. Yes. And then there's the self with a capital S, which is that point of connection. I'd say it's the same thing William James was talking about in that frontispiece. Mm -hmm. Deeper um, reaches of our being plunge into an altogether other dimension of existence than the uh, merely visible, uh, merely understandable world, visible and merely understandable world. So that Jung had adopted this basically Asian notion of an Atman, right? yeah. that the divine resides within you in some way. And is if you connect with that, you do connect with something that's universal. Now, as you know, there's a, a major discussion in the uh, intellectual world about constructivism versus perennialism in these matters. And how much is really universal and how much is necessarily comes out of our, our cultural upbringing. Local, yeah. But, but uh, I think there is a, a viable middle ground there. Our friend Jeff Kripal tries to, tries to um, explore it. Yep. You also hit a, a fundamental reality that's, that's universal. It may not be experienced in exactly the same way, but there are patterns of experience that reach across uh, cultural lines. Um, another wonderful phrase of William James that comes to my mind here is, um, I'm probably not going to be able to recall it verbatim, but it's um, the, it has a notion that, that the mysticism ultimately has no uh, culture or, or creed mm -hmm. on that. And it's a uh, question, question would be, where in that process of that mystical contact uh, do you begin to be completely influenced by cultural formation? And that's a, that's a discussion, right? Well, and, uh, the, the piece here that I want to clarify, or I, I, I want I want clarity, because um, I'm obviously not in this tradition of the constructivist mm -hmm. um, perspective. Because I, I I push it I push it along, and I say, okay, it's like language; it's a locally constructed um, form that 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 t is influenced by the environment, um, by the stories and the narratives, and you know, so on and so forth. But the the fact is, we all have the capacity to learn a language. What do constructivists say when it comes to that? Like, if I have the, the 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 seat, that can or the the vessel that can be filled with all kinds of different um, experience or information, um, the the pattern is the vessel. Like, we all got a vessel. Um, where does the perennialist or the you know pluralism and constructivism where do they intersect and where do they not intersect? Yeah. Well, actually, that gets to, I think, a central theme of the book, uh, which is um, I 
transmission theory, mm-hmm. filter theory. So the constructivist, at least as I view it, and, and I, I don't pretend to build expertise here, but I have thought about it. Uh, the constructivists basically accept the materialistic view of modern Western society that all consciousness comes from the human brain. And this was an issue, it's, an, it's, a, it's a perfect issue to, to, I think, talk about themes of the book because um, the, uh, I remember Stan Groff talking about the notion of, um, you don't have to consider it all coming from the brain. It's more like a television set that there may be a world of consciousness out there. And this he came to, I must say, through experiment, (laughs) through scientific clinical work, not through uh, preordained prejudices, that um, you you get beyond the brain. That was the title of his book. Mm -hmm. And you have, um, there is consciousness out there that the brain processes. No one would deny that the brain has a great influence on thought and experience. But, but the notion is um, that that doesn't mean that the brain produces it. There could be a, 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 a world of consciousness, intelligence out there that the brain processes. And that notion, that notion goes back to my friend William Jay. Well, he, he called it the transmission theory. And in a, in a lecture at Harvard in the 1880s, he uh, made the distinction between the brain as a, as a producer of consciousness and the brain as a transmitter of consciousness. Mm. So that it, it may in many, most instances perhaps produce but that doesn't mean that there isn't part of our experience that um, can reach beyond what our normal brain, our, our brain, the influences that have normally formed our cerebral operations, right? So that um, we, we can get to something that's We may not know how to articulate it. It's ineffable in James's term about mysticism, but something that convinces people who've had that experience that there is a reality out there that is way beyond the visible and nearly understandable world. Yeah, I like that term, the invisible. And I, I want to even back up a little bit because something I loved so much about your book was this, and that now I get it because you're... Um, you let me know what your master's and doctorate um, were all about. So uh, would you, can could we, could we back up? Because I want to contextualize this. You're, you're, you're labeling a couple of names, but you're, you're, the, the attention that you paid to the lineage, uh-huh. I think was a real gift in your book. Uh, it, and just for, for those of you, of course, that, that haven't read the book yet, um, it ranges from the paranormal to the mystical to the dogmatic to these uh, practices that are used in various um, uh, communities, and in, in, in specifically the Bonnie method and the uh, holotropic breath work, 
And so backing up really far, you said earlier, uh, American civilization, that was your, your master's, right? And That's so right. Would, would you speak a bit about what that, what American, what, what is uh, unique about American mystical or spiritual uh, perspective and thought? How does, how does, what is that lane, uh, you know, American traditional spirituality? Well, I wouldn't call it unique because I think, you know, we're all linked to a wider world, including American thinkers, even, even in the um, earlier centuries. But the, um, uh, what, there's a strain of American thought here that I think comes to a kind of flowering transpersonal psychology. Um, the, uh, you would trace it back to, um, well, you could, you could certainly trace it earlier. I mean, the, the foundations of, of uh, the colonies in New England were in some measure mystical. We have a figure like Jonathan Edwards might be the first American mystic uh, who was a, uh, trying to explain his own religious experience, which was very profound in the context of Calvinistic theology and, and also enlightenment thought. But that's, that gets a little earlier than I think the direct lineage I want to point to here, which is uh, from transcendentalist thinkers in the early 19th century. Now they weren't unique. They were drawing on German romanticism, uh, but, but you have really outstanding figures like um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Margaret Fuller, slightly later Walt Whitman, uh, who, who had a sense, who wanted to honor all the emerging scientific and empirical thought that was coming to the fore in their time, but also had a strong sense of a transcendental reality. And that, that um, where my book really picks up, it makes allusions to that context earlier, but where it really picks up is with the emergence of the field of modern psychology, which was trying to make the study of the psyche a science. Mm -hmm. Therefore mm -hmm. trying to uh, before the 1880s, the field of anything that you would call psychology or the study of the psyche would have been part of a department of philosophy in a university. It's just, it's speculation because that's, that's, some of it was um, uh, highly sophisticated speculation about one's own personal experience, but it's still, it, it that didn't involve scientific investigation of, of other people's experience and, and um, trying to tie uh, explanations to empirical facts that could be named and explored and, uh, and to experiment. And the first laboratories in the uh, psychological laboratories in the United States were formed in the 1870s. Mm -hmm. And the, um, what we have 
generally the uh, professional field of psychology went through, as I see it as a historian, went through a field in which different ideas were coming to the fore. But around um, the early 20th century, uh, it, um, it pretty much got focused on behaviorism, which is about as scientific and materialistic as you can go, trying to tie all human behavior to, to physical facts, or Freudian psychoanalysis, right? Uh, which really begins to spread radically in the 1920s or so, maybe after 1910 uh, into the 20s. And, but there was another strain. There was another strain of psychological investigators who did not abandon that sense of, they wanted to, they, they wanted to be as scientific as could be in their approach, tying their ideas to empirical investigation, but they turned to some of these ideas that made room for a sense of spirit as Freud did not, and behaviorism certainly didn't. Um, forms of explanation that made room for that because they thought they explained the data better. better. And that's where the paranormal comes in. <laughs> There's a, uh, we had, the, the book uh, has these chapters on uh, R.M. Buck, uh, who's Canadian psychologist who wrote. Thank you for that, by the way. I really enjoyed your treatment of, of uh, his work. Well, I see his, his, it's very significant historically. He came up with the notion of cosmic consciousness. He based it on, he didn't invent the term exactly, but he, he, his, his famous book was called Cosmic Consciousness. And he himself had this mystical experience that he tried to explain by looking deeply into the literature, into really a lot of world literature, where other people might have had such experiences. And he tried to explain their experiences very much in terms of his own uh, mystical experiences, which had its, uh, both its insights and its limitation. But then it goes through, he, he was, uh, his Cosmic Consciousness was published in 1901, I think. And then we get into William James's, the, uh, well, the whole discovery, ah, yes. The whole discovery of the unconscious mind, right? And now you, you, you toss that idea out on the street and then somebody's, somebody who picks it up will think, oh, well, that begins with Freud, right? right? But my book, I hope, demonstrates that the notion was there well before Freud. And we can trace it through these uh, uh, figures like Frederick Myers, whom I explore um, in, in, in uh, some depth in one of these chapters. He was a British investigator of the paranormal who was trying to uh, look into um, the experience of, um, of mediums. Mediums who would go into trance states, right? They would go into trance states and then they would know things that they had no way of knowing in their mm. ordinary lives. 
Frederick Myers, uh, William James got very involved in this too. They were both together, they were both uh, instrumental in this, uh, in the formation in the early years of the group called the, uh, the SPI, the, um, um, what does the SPI stand for? The, the um, in any case, it was investigating the paranormal in the, in these early years in a, in a time when spiritualism, which is to say these mediums trying to make contact with the dead, was in vogue. And, and let me, before, let, let's set something up because I'm, I'm conscientious of the terminology here regarding the, in particular, the Freudian and the behaviorism and the materialism. And w let me try to put it in my own words and make sure that, uh, that I'm tracking. So essentially uh, what I hear you saying is that there is a split in our intellectual and uh, spiritual traditions, and it can be, it, it manifests in our universities. It's a split between the sciences, what we call the sciences and the humanities. And in the one, we want to, we have a method in order to observe, um, measure and replicate phenomena. Uh, and and test, you know, we come up with hypotheses and we test hypotheses through this method that is a very effective method and is a valuable method, although there's a limitation because what it, there are aspects of reality that are not, aren't, aren't subjected to replication, that are um, unmeasurable, um, that we would consider to be more qualitative, less quantitative, that are more subjective, um, and of course, we can get into a whole conversation about subjectivity and objective and all that that we may get into, but we may not. So the 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 imagination is the is the uh, arena of the humanities uh, in a lot of ways. And so what happens is that is science is getting more and more um, refined and uh, and more broad in its cultural applications. What you see are these parts of subjective experience. What what Kripal, you know, when I when I talked to him, he talked about the paranormal being that which is outside of what is normal, what is known. You know, we don't have any rational understanding of why these things are happening or what is going on. So it gets kicked out into this catch-all drawer of the paranormal. But science doesn't quite know what to do with that because of the limitations, albeit very effective and valuable and important, the, the limitations of that method so that there are these folks who are saying, hey, let's not forget about this. Um, you know, whether it's a placebo or whatever, we can't just wish it away by, by categorizing it as something that just happens. Um, and so there are folks who really wanted to understand, um, even recognizing that our rational thinking and certain technological limitations of the time prevent us from being able to uh, understand um, and connect with aspects of these uh, experiences. But nonetheless, there still are all of these experiences that many people have. Uh, and, and just for anybody listening, I, I, I do think it's important to note that for me, what, what happens when I start thinking about the paranormal is I immediately get a bit skeptical and I have trust, I have trust issues. I think that's the, I have trust issues with the paranormal because there's a bunch of bullshit out there and there's a bunch of charlatans and there's a bunch of people that are taking advantage of uh, a human desire to connect with the transcendent. Uh, so people have, whether they are intentional or not, they've kind of muddied the waters. But regardless of that, I could say the same thing about science. 
there's a bunch of bullshit in there and there's a bunch of charlatans out there. You just go to any scientific research center and say, how many people have actually um, intentionally fucked with their, their data? Tons, like tons. So I, I, I just want to solve that for myself because I, I do look at, I have the charlatan thing, but if we're going to blame, we've got to blame honestly and equally. And so we need to blame both sides and recognize that the critique I'm giving to this side is also a critique I need to give to this side. And now we can have an open conversation because the thought that blows my mind when it comes to the paranormal is 99.9% of all of paranormal experience could be totally false. Totally, totally like, you know, some, some, somebody created this uh, to, to mess with people, you know, 99.9%, but 0.1% if it actually does hint at a reality beyond our understanding, then it's right, which is blows my fucking mind. <laughs> May I run with that? Oh, yes, please. Beautiful, or, or, beautiful oration there, John. The, um, uh, this is exactly what the, the strain that runs through the whole book. But... What we're dealing with here, both in transpersonal psychology and in these earlier figures I'm talking about, um, was an attempt to pull those worlds together. Yeah. Create a, a tertium quid, you no, know, a third thing that would honor both mm-hmm. and the, of the truth of both. When transpersonal psychology tried to define itself in, um, around 1970, it said that it was one of its main purposes was to investigate what it referred to as um, extraordinary personal experiences. And that included things like mystical experiences and it included things like the paranormal. And they saw that as a revolutionary thing because it hadn't been done for the previous 50 years uh, because psychology wouldn't admit to it as a field but the figures i'm talking about who were earlier in psychology uh, were trying to do exactly that they were investigating these extraordinary personal experiences in this in 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 the case of the the sbi i referred to as the society for psychical research they were looking at um experiences that were undeniable because they found thousands of them but they um that that couldn't be explained by our materialistic view of the world and and yet they wanted to investigate those things as scientifically as possible they all conceived of themselves as men of science Uh, james was trained in physiology and biology and he studied the he went to the amazon with to study geology uh went to med then his, his degree was in medical school but uh, but he um he and frederick myers and the spi were looking into cases like uh crisis apparitions a crisis apparition is when um you have a sudden experience of somebody else, at a, usually a loved one, somebody you're really close to. Mm-hmm. That person is going through a 
crisis, normally death. And these experiences are reported universally. Oh, that's, yeah. They, um, they, they wrote a, published a book in 1886 um, on, that ha had 900 such cases. This was a British publication by the Society for Psychical Research. And, they, um, and these were cases that were all verified. That is to say, they tossed out, they didn't consider anything that was just a report of one person. It had to happen so that uh, there was other testimony that the person who, the recipient, the person who had this experience, mentioned it to someone else before it was actually discovered that the, the uh, agent, that is the person who seemingly the focus of the experience, had gone through this crisis. So, and they tried to trace it traced down that style of verification according to the scientific canons of the time. And they, um, so they, they had cases like that that just can't be explained by the notion that all um, knowledge comes through the senses. Mm -hmm. He said, if there's one exception to that, then, then uh, that's right. That, that tells us something about reality. Yeah. James wonderful phrase for that phrase. he said mrs piper and i'll tell you about her in a second mrs piper is my white crow that is in uh, <laughs> order to prove that not all crows are black you don't have to show that no crows are black you just have to find that one freaking white crow one crow that's right and and um leonora piper was a boston middle-class housewife who had the, who was a medium. And James, uh, William James was dragged to her very skeptically by his own mother-in-law. <laughs> and he, um, because she had been to a seance with her and he, she started spelling things in this trance state um, that, that, were things about his own family that she had no way of knowing. And that intrigued the scientific investigator and psychologist. And from then on, he was arguing that we, that science itself tosses out these experiences, mm -hmm. but they don't fit with the worldview of the science of the time. And he had a beautifully sophisticated argument about how that that's always changing, that, that, that scientific worldview. But nevertheless, his, he realized that what transpersonal psychologists later rediscovered, that in trance states, like through psychedelic drugs or through holotropic breathwork, um, people can hit experiences in reality that they have no way of knowing in their ordinary life. Now, Leonora Piper, was um, she never took money for any of this, as many mediums did. And, and as you say, there was a huge amount of fraud in the field. Right. And in fact, the Society for Psychical Research, one of its main goals was to expose all the fraud. And it had people involved in it that thought the um, mediumship was, a, was entirely bunk. And, and they found a huge amount of fraud. 
but they also found these other cases that they just couldn't explain. Um, and Leonor Piper went through all kinds of testing. They would isolate her. They would put her in, um, uh, have her deal with people who had never, she had never met before. And she was taken to Britain, so she, this could happen. And, and in these states, she would know things that just could not be explained through the ordinary patterns of knowledge. And that, that was what influenced these people as scientific investigators. And so when, when I started studying William James, he was taught as the American pragmatist. We didn't learn this at all, that this was one of his great interests because it would have been an embarrassment. But, but he, um, uh, Frederick Myers, he, he delved into this research and wrote, wrote uh, voluminously about these kinds of trance experience, including 70, ex re 70 sittings he had had with, with uh, Leonora Piper. And, you know, a lot of it was trivial. A lot of it just didn't make sense. He never reached any conclusions about whether she was actually um, contacting um, spirits of the dead. In fact, he thought probably not. Hey, let me, uh, just a thought occurs to me, because I, uh, insight or whatever, um, as a psychotherapist, I'm consistently connecting with people who are sharing things that they've never shared with anyone else, and usually because they feel very ashamed. So it, it's almost like their inner world or their imagination, like, you know, they had some horribly violent thought, or they had a fantasy, a sexual fantasy, you know, they, they shouldn't think that way, you know. And, and so it's, again, that world of the imagination that is scary uh, because we don't really have a framework for that. And so they push it to the side or they repress it or defend against it. So it's understandable that we can use kind of what happens in the micro as an understanding of what goes on in the macro, that, that if we don't have a particular framework collectively for an experience, we, we, don't, we, we can't do anything with it. So it gets connected. As a Jungian, you'd, you'd say, you know, it gets thrown into the shadow it still is activated and it has uh, an energy field, but it doesn't get tended to consciously. So the work on psychotherapy, go on, sorry. I'm sorry, that's exactly, this is quick. That's exactly what these people felt about the science of their time. So they wanted to expand the science. Right. And the really strong, careful empirical investigation to encompass that sort of thing. Well, I think what, what Kripal did for me and our, we were, you know, cause I gave him the example of a poltergeist and he said, yeah, everybody thinks about a poltergeist, you know, and it's, it's, he's not saying that you have to posit some mind over matter issue. It's that you just can't reconcile it on some level rationally. And so of course it gets thrown into some floating apparition or, you know, something is happening. You know, I, I guess what's interesting for me is that, you know, does that does that world exist? Does that spirit world kind of come over into the material world? But, but really, what what we're dealing with is are a series. I think are again at the risk of being reductive here are a series of limitations based upon our culture, based upon our ego, based upon our development. That that uh, that there are aspects of our reality that we can't comprehend. So we don't create opportunities to commune with or connect with those what then become pretty scary parts of ourselves because the as a kid if if i grow up thinking 
um, that my sexuality is dirty or is harmful or, or is reserved for only these parts of time, um, then all of a sudden my observer here, you know, as soon as I get turned on or have a sexual thought about somebody, um, all of a sudden I, I'm in a pit of shame and I'm dealing with that shame. Yet if I just went to somebody and started to learn, oh, those are really natural, normal aspects of the imagination, um, then you don't have to create such harsh, confining containers of, of identity, which I think on some level is what you're saying is that science did. I mean, science creates this. It's a method that becomes an ideology, that becomes an identity that one measures oneself against, and that anything that's not kind of seen through that prism is deemed to be a, a kind of amoral, bad, unnecessary, devalued kind of experience. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, uh, John. And the the um, what what these folks were doing, what modern transpersonal psychology is doing, is let's say trying to um, empirically explore the edges of the dual. <laughs> uh, we we um, uh, Jeff Kripal's phrase to return to him is the. Uh, the human human as two, yeah. right? We have these, we have this everyday materialistic, rational side of ourselves. And we have another that we we get access to. Um, and that's that more spiritual side. And what what I think all of these people, the figure in this book were trying to do is to try to to see how far they could go using uh, of something that could be at least related to a scientific methodology and uh, if possible really uh, following scientific canons to explore the other side uh, however that's experienced now the mediums were experiencing it as spirit of the dead but they were but the people who were examining them uh, the were trying to find psychological experiences that, uh, or look for these psychological elements in that. So they didn't take literally that this was necessarily your uncle James, who's come back from, from uh, the other world, but uh, how could they know the things that James seemed to know? Would you, would you put a little, skin on that bone too because uh, the two figures that I really enjoyed uh, I'm a I'm very obsessed with layers of con what I call layers of consciousness and of course this has been tended to by uh, Buck by James by Ken Wilbur um, and I've read a, a bit of Ken Wilbur and in reading your work I'm going to go back to him because his structure of the psyche I'm very interested by and and essentially would you do an overview of um, of some of those layers that are articulated by some of these fellows and, 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 and women um, throughout the, the transpersonal movement. Yeah, I think... Um, you know, I may have I, caught you off guard there. I don't well, know. no, no, no. I could do that. I'm trying to think of who to, whom to select. Uh -huh. and, you know, I think I'd like to go back to my mentor, Stan Groff, uh, because um, Stan is... is had his own mystical experience, very powerful mystical experience on his first 
clinical experience with LSD in 1956. And um, he was somebody who had grown up in, in Czechoslovakia under communist control. The, the, the general philosophy was entirely, um, entirely uh, materialistic. Mm -hmm. And his own training was, was purely Freudian. And suddenly he had this experience that like Bucks was so powerful that it became life defining. They just couldn't deny the reality of it. And he had this experience that consciousness, consciousness was something much more fundamental than a product of the human brain. It permeated all of reality. And so he spent um, the years after that experience working in a clinical setting in Czechoslovakia with, with using LSD and beginning to map out scientifically that sense, right? And just record and map out what the experiences were of all these people who had gone through the use of this drug. And they begin to, to explore how it could be, carry those people deeper and deeper into their um, subconscious. So we have, I mean, if you have a figure like Freud, he had a tremendous contribution to, to modern thought, right? Mm -hmm. With, with his, his characterization of the unconscious. And he compares the unconscious to um, compares consciousness to an iceberg. Mm -hmm. the, the rational mind that we know every day is the tip of the iceberg, and below it is the unconscious, which he would divide into it and ego and superego. Which are personal. All personal, right. What, what Groff and these transpersonal psychologists are arguing is that that whole personal conscious could be seen as the tip of the iceberg. And that below it is other realms of consciousness that reach beyond the person. Now how Groff experienced in his, um, in his investigations was, uh, first of all, people got far more deeply into their personal consciousness. And so that um, he totally honored the Freudian view. He just said it was very partial. Yes. And he, but then not necessarily in sequence, but sometimes often in sequence, they would have experiences that could not be explained that way. First experiences of their um, own birth. And out of that, he came to the conclusion that birth itself kind of integrates the earlier work of Ronk into this, uh, Otto Ronk into the canon um, here. The, um, that, that birth experience is a, is a central experience of life that's really traumatic. And he began to cut that into stages and see different ways in which the birth experience got affected the subjective mind, but it never was 
purely contained by that individual personality, those, uh, it would then, the consciousness would then begin to reach into the transpersonal so that like Leonor Piper, <laughs> people would be having experiences of something that they just couldn't explain from their ordinary, rational, everyday experience. But, and and let, me, let me interject really fast, Mark, because I want to define this too. I'm realizing we haven't really defined Freudian. And what, what you're hearing here, and please fix this if it's off, is that the, our, the current way we're using the signifier Freudian points to a reduction that happens in our life experience where we can almost simplify our current drama, personality, dynamic. We can simplify it back to our development. You know, that, that um, the, the oceanic feeling that he would talk about is really a kind of a desire to reconnect with what it must have felt like being in the womb, where all of your needs are met, where you're cared for, where you, there are no challenges. And the, uh, um, the fundamental trauma that we all experience is the birth trauma, where we are separated from the warm embrace of the mother. And on some level, we are attempting to recreate or replicate that kind of experience throughout our lives. And is that, do you have anything to add to that? Well, what Groff did was begin to really get into elements of that, the birth trauma. And what, what I think you're saying is that, is that what Groff was doing is saying, yes, and. Yes, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yes, absolutely. And, but it goes beyond that. It goes, um, it goes into a um, realms that we tend to call spiritual and, and, and perceptions. Mm-hmm that transcend our everyday lives, of whatever we could have experienced in our everyday lives. And so that um, um, we have experiences that my folks back then in the early days, like Frederick Myers, labeled super normal. Mm-hmm. That became the French term paranormal, <laughs> which came back into English. Bouncing around, yeah. Each. But, but the, what, what what Myers was trying to do was to say, this isn't, um, this isn't heavenly realms coming in from some dualism into our world. This is part of our world. It's normal. It's just, it's, it's, um, it's just beyond the everyday. Outside and, of ego consciousness. Yeah. So he was, the one thing these people were looking for, the, the mediums of the time, tend to ex- explain their experiences in terms of some consciousness coming down from heaven <laughs> and uh, invading them. It was something from the outside. And these psychologists were trying to look at as fully as they can, how could this be coming from the inside? And that drove mm-hmm. like James into the notion that the further reaches of our... Um, the further reaches, further limits of our being plunge into an utterly other dimension that we call a spiritual or supernatural. And, and but for, for a figure like Myers, he, was, he got away from the term supernatural and 
use supernormal because he was saying that it was not above nature, it was part of nature. And this is, this is getting back to what we were saying earlier, that you, if you go far enough to use that kind of, if you go far enough into the subjective, you are connected with an objective, structured, patterned experience that is, uh, can happen to all kinds of people. That, that I think that's kind of what we get at when we talk about the objective psyche. A lot of times we imagine it in a dual structure as ultimately separate, as opposed to inter paradoxically interconnected between subjective and objective, and it's kind of a both and. Yeah, I would, there. I would refine that a little, or maybe Please. it's not a refining, but I, I um, the patterning can, can vary, but the reality of confronting it seems to be universal. I use the metaphor in the book of uh, to to, to uh, argue with some of the constructivism. If you could dive into the ocean in many different parts of the world and see something quite different mm -hmm. uh, below the surface, but the experience of the dive is pretty much the same no matter where you are. Right. And that's, that's um, I think, you know, I, I, there's such a common patterning of a mystical experience that, um, or at least classical mystical experience, that um, doesn't allow me to say it's, uh, it's utterly constructed. That, that, that whole notion a buck, buck comes to it, and uh, is that an underpinning of reality is love. He quotes um, uh, Walt Whitman on that. Walt Whitman had the, uh, apparently had a similar kind of mystical experience. And, mm -hmm. uh, and his final refrain in that stanza was, a Kelson of the creation is love, Whitman's. Now, Kelson is a, is a nautical term. It's the um, it's the beam at the base of a ship that holds the whole structure together. And and um, that that so many people who have had that experience seem to have some comparable kinds of ways of talking about it. And not everybody. And it it. Um, um, and some people have terrifying mystical experiences, but but there's a common enough pattern so that I'm I'm inclined to say, don't give up on the perennialist. This is this is um, a fundamental aspect of reality. Well, I, I want to be conscious conscientious of time. Mm -hmm. um, so how how much time do you have left? Let's well, give it whatever, whatever you. We can go for whatever works for you. I'd say. John, another 15 minutes? That'd be, that'd be perfect, actually. 15 minutes would be great. Um, I, I, I want to... I have a couple threads that are hanging out, and, and one of the... Again, I want to mention Wil, Wilbur. Um, you, you brought him in in a number of really elegant ways, again, to kind of reinforce this idea of the structure of consciousness that's, um, that I find so captivating and important. And it almost... Uh, for me, as a psychotherapist, it helps me understand, you know, why we have conflict, and if we only woke up to the fact that, 
you know, whether you're a, you know, a fundamentalist that needs something, some kind of dogma that, that, that um, provides you a pathway or you're a mystic, you know, the, uh, do your thing, man. Um, I think it's like, as long as you're not harming other people and enforcing your beliefs on others, which is, of course, one of the problems of the kind of egoism of humanity, that, that we, we're so scared about walking the wrong path that we have to assert our path on other people because the idea of them living differently than us makes us feel so totally insecure about our own footing that uh, we got to fight them for it, you know? It's like, <laughs> don't you make me question my shit, man. And so I want to talk a little bit about Wilbur, if that's, if that's helpful. But then I also, um, I want to ask you about, uh, given, you know, your experiences in uh, transpersonal psychology, you and I connected in one of the classes that we both taught, uh, uh, looking at um, Brian Marescu's work in The Immortality Key. And I, I just want to ask you about the current state of psychedelics in, in uh, the, uh, the United States, in particular because of your interest in American civilization. So those two threads I'd like to, uh, uh, to connect with and anything else that you've got hanging out there. Okay. The dog has been quieted. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, let me let me begin with uh, uh, Wilbur. He uh, had a he's had a tremendous influence in this whole world of transpersonal thinking. He no longer calls himself his. You know, I, I compare him in certain ways with the Stanislav Grof. Grof kind of seems to have had these kind of basic insights that he's refined over time, but the stance mm -hmm. remain quite the same. Wilbur has evolved quite a bit since his earliest books. His first book was called um, Spectrum of Psychology, I think. <laughs> yeah, the Spectrum. And, um, and there he was, um, he was using the image of a spectrum to, to try to make room, generously make room, for different ways of approaching the psyche. You had psychologists who were coming with very different the theories, fields, mm -hmm. and, they, um, and they, they conflicted with, with, with one another, and Freud kicked people out of his inner circle, and Ronk went, and Jung went, and, and uh, so they had these different ways of looking at the mind, and what Wilbur tried to do was to say, well, let's say they're all true. And they all fit together. And he, he used a kind of spectrum by saying it, it, it uh, fits together depending on what you consider human identity. I can't go into the details of that. But, but he have, uh, you have a, a, a wider and wider sense of what your identity is from the narrowest sense of the human body to the ego. And then... And these different branches of psychology are addressing different stages of that development along the way. And then what he did that was that had a, a major impact at the time was he 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 took that up through the through the major fields that were running that were conflicting with each other in um, in psychology in the epoch. This is in the seventies. And he, he then integrated into it Eastern thought. He said you, you, that identity gets wider and wider 
going by the same fundamental view of the psyche that we're talking about, until it stretches into something, this other dimension of existence, and um, then it, it uh, and that's where the East has proven so adept. And so he gets into, he tries to integrate Asian views of spiritual development in with this Western view of psychology. So if you follow the spectrum up the scale, it's as if the West begins at these lower levels of, of identity and then the, the East travels <laughs> further uh, along as you get to higher and higher stages of, of uh, spiritual development. Now, he, um, he backs off of that to some degree and uh, there are others who argued it's just too hierarchical and uh, not um, not pluralistic enough. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then he begins to refine these different stages and see see the psyche as can the the, the uh, stages of development as uh, affecting many different aspects of the psyche and they don't all have to develop at the same rate at the same time. So it, it gets to be a, quite a complicated vision. But then the other thing he does, which I think is, is uh, a real contribution, he begins to apply this kind of spiritual thought to uh, other fields of, of um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. fields of sociology and and uh, anthropology and he comes up with a really a remarkably comprehensive system about human evolution his his magnum opus is called sex ecology spirituality and uh, he's he's written many books but that that one I think is one that will certainly hang around and it's um, and he, he envisions human evolution uh, going in these, um, and he, he ties it all to a sense of, of evolving into greater and greater uh, stages of development. And, um, and he, he sees an impact for this spiritual um, analysis to affect other fields of thought. I try to do a small instance of that in my, uh, I guess it's my pen up ultimate chapter on Abraham Lincoln, when mm -hmm. I, um, I pull out my historian's hat again and analyze the Gettysburg Address according to the transpersonal psychology of Stan Groff and try to make the perhaps outrageous claim that a century and a half of explaining the the power of the Gettysburg Address over the American psyche has been missing the, the fundamental aspect of it, which can be traced in the, through transpersonal psychology. We won't go into that, but in any case, um, you wanted to talk a little, oh, let me just throw in that Wilder made great use of this notion of the spectrum. Me too. But one, one thing that, I, um, that this book does is show how that, that spectrum was made use of by my earlier figures as well. 
And uh, this Frederick Myers makes use of it in a way that I find, I think really has explanatory value that is getting exploited now in a certain revival of Frederick Myers by, by um, psychologists at the University of Virginia, uh, the, named Edwin Kelly and others as a whole cohort. They're associated with the Esalen Institute. Esalen has played a big role in this, Michael Murphy. But the, um, but the notion is that um, consciousness has this full spectrum. And just as our vision can track only a full, a small segment, a small band of that spectrum with um, of, of the spectrum of light waves, uh, we see only a small uh, segment of what's going on in terms of the waves out there. That our consciousness can be like that. Our normal everyday consciousness sees this small band, but there are things going on that we have access to um, both internally as you can swing a golf club and know exactly where to put the golf. You don't think that out rationally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the, um, but it can also result in um, uh, genius. Suddenly, Mozart says he didn't write the symphonies. They just kind of came to him. He just yep. wrote them down. And you have a lot of people had that experience where there's clearly something has been being processed in the um, unconscious mind that bursts into consciousness in some way through some catalyst. Well, and, the, and the, the thought that comes to mind for me is how what, what, we, what we know on, what, when we know this, uh, we know that human consciousness, or, and it's weird that that term brings up so much with it, but I'll just use it right now. Human consciousness is a limiter in some way, and I love the, the, the filter, right? It, 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 only is, it is only able to select particular uh, information um, experience and a lot is left out right and so what we have is an is other senses that we don't um, practice or even understand or even acknowledge that uh, that could help us at least connect with the unknowable or recognize or be in relationship with it but truly what's happening is we are limited by the nature of, of that consciousness. And so what all these folks are saying is that we have, we have ways of connecting with that which is beyond our own uh, limitations. And the irony is that modern science and, and a lot of people in, in science are looking at panpsychism as a very real a very real understanding of consciousness i mean there are like mathematical equations now that are laying this out yes yes absolutely and the um the it's that consciousness you know it's it's not only begins to be validated in scientific procedures that i'd never pretend to understand right but it's also um it also becomes available to us individually. And that takes us to the theme of your, uh, that you wanted to get to about the psychedelics. The, um, I, one of my favorite quotations from William James is, 
is this. He's, he, and this was, he had a experience with nitrous oxide, mm -hmm. uh, which um, was used in dentistry in his time. And uh, they, but it, he ran into a figure by the name of Benjamin Paul Blood, who wrote a privately printed book called The Anesthetic Revolution, Revelation, The Anesthetic Revelation, where um, he had his own mystical experience on nitrous oxide, and he runs with that and explains it. So James tried it, <laughs> and he said, um, one conclusion was forced upon my mind at that time, and my impression of its truth has ever since remained unshaken. It is that our normal waking consciousness, rational consciousness as we call it, is but one special type of consciousness, whilst all around it, all around it, parted from it by the filmiest of screens, there lie other forms of consciousness entirely different. Mm -hmm. We may go through life without um, suspecting their existence, but apply the requisite stimulus, and at a touch they are there in all their completeness, definite kinds of mentality that probably somewhere have their fields of application and adaptation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The universe in its totality can be final, whilst these other forms of consciousness are quite disregarded. Mm -hmm. So, and he never let go of that. He had, he was not mystically inclined. I mean, he wrote the, the, the classic work on mysticism and he, um, he, he investigated, he wrote the, the classic work on religious experience, but he himself didn't, he saw himself as more of an investigator. Mm -hmm. not an experiencer he did have a couple of experiences mm -hmm. in nature in the Adirondack once in the Adirondacks and once in the Alps in which he he had some kind of pretty moving luminous experience but in any case he never, he never let go of that drug experience and he had that same conviction that Buck had that this this is the key to something really real mm-hmm and um, now, as, as, you, as you well know, we're in a, a moment when a, a figure like, uh, I think, Stanislav Grof will be vindicated in the way that Carl Ruck has been vindicated by, yeah. by Brian <laughs> right. uh, Stan was using these um, LSD investigations and other forms of psychedelics up until it was shut down by the government. And then a little beyond that, he managed to be with uh, the, um, the particular place he was working in Maryland was kept open, apparently because the uh, congressman from Maryland had had the experience himself. We don't know that for sure, but- Allegedly. <laughs> in any case, um, so he, he later developed the breath work and continued this exploration through other non-drug ways of, of, uh, of contacting um, these further limits of our nature. And, and many cultures do this routinely mm -hmm. without drugs, some with, but there are other, other avenues, right? But he had, uh, we're now at a point where, where that work is being revalidated. A lot of the work done in the 
60s and 70s is being um, uh, again done in ways that people think of as original, but in fact, it's a revalidation of work right. intensively done then and it's being carried further. So um, we're in that kind of revival that uh, it, I think would make for exciting times in your profession. Holy moly, it sure is. It's, it's so radical, though, that it's, I don't, I don't know, chicken or the egg here, but it's being validated scientifically. And now it's certainly being validated economically. And, uh, and, and of course, that scientific validation is what's necessary. And I, I'm, we need to be mindful and conscientious. We're, we're playing with non-rational parts of ourselves. And so we, we do need to keep our feet on the floor. But um, but but certainly creating opportunities for, pe- for people to have religious experiences in safe, contained, and therapeutic ways, keeping in mind that the term therapy is caretaking, and psychotherapy means caretaking of the soul. And so to, to be conscious of that non-rational, non-egoic, we don't have to posit some kind of, uh, you know, th- theological reality. We can just say there, there's something beyond our ego-rational experience, and what we do is tend to call that soul. Beautiful job. So, oh, yeah, continue. Yes. One plug. Yeah, plug <laughs> away. You know, the, the people involved in the holotropic breathwork and related fields like guided imagery and music have been working on the ways to do that in that contained a way. It can contain fortune, a contained manner in the last 50 years. Yeah. And, and that has, I think, something that can carry into this revival of psychedelic work. And we do that in Houston through Holotropic Breathwork Houston. I might encourage your uh, your uh, audience to be in touch with that. Um, there'll be a, there'll be a little little uh, link that just appears at the bottom of the screen just then. So yeah, I'll I'll prop it up. Search for Holotropic Breathwork Houston. You'll find a website. Good, and uh, and I'll say again, check out Mark's book, and I'll have information. And anywhere you want to send anybody besides the Holotropic Breathwork Houston. Um. To the uh, whatever is coming out of John Price's <laughs> explorations, <laughs> interviews, and his vision about how that will develop into his own uh, station and book. <laughs> Thank you for that, <laughs> uh, Mark. Uh, you know, it's it's great. It just for everybody viewing, Mark and I are uh, slugging it out on the curriculum committee of, of the Young Center, and and Mark's been very involved in the Young Center, and. Um, I'm just I'm overjoyed to connect with you in this way today, and I I feel uh, I feel it's a blessing to have read your your work. So anybody curious about these ideas, um, Mark's a fantastic ambassador of, uh, of of transpersonal psychology and where it fits in the kind of um, uh, our psychological and spiritual uh, uh, transformations that are occurring culturally. So thank you very much for doing the work that you do. Bless you, John. Thank you very much. I really you too. enjoyed. It.